Today we have uh, Peter Williams from Southampton, England, who's going to talk to us about uh, faith and rationality and the relationship between them. So we are very much looking forward to that. I think we can just give him a, a hand when he goes up. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I, I also um, have a connection to Norway in that I work for uh, NLR University College, uh, particularly the Christian Sand uh, branch uh, at Gimler Collin, uh, where I am a 40% uh, position in um, communication and worldviews and teaching apologetics and uh, logic and various uh, philosophical topics around there. Uh, so, let us get stuck into uh, faith and rationality, faith and reason, and the relationship between them. Famous atheist Christopher Hitchens said that religion is a surrender of reason in favour of faith. Famous British atheist Richard Dawkins criticises religious faith as requiring blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of, that is against, evidence. Well, as theologian Alistair McGrath says, the classic Christian tradition has always valued rationality and does not hold that faith involves the complete abandonment of reason. Indeed, as the American Christian philosopher J.P. Morland says, Christianity claims to be a knowledge tradition. The Old and New Testaments, including the teachings of Jesus, claim not merely that Christianity is true, but that a variety of its moral and religious assertions can be known to be true. Let's think a little about knowledge and uh, warranted, justified belief. To have a belief is to think that a given proposition is at least more likely than not true. Morland points out that a belief's impact on our behaviour is a function of its content, its strength and its centrality in our system of thinking about things. A belief's content is what is believed and this, of course, can be more or less vague. A belief's strength is the degree to which you rely on it as a basis for action. And the centrality of a belief is the degree of importance that belief plays in your entire set of beliefs, that is, your worldview. Now, C.S. Lewis said, reality is that about which truth is. In other words, there's a distinction here between the truth, that is reality, what is the case, the facts, and truth or truthfulness as the property of accurately representing reality, the truth, the facts. As Aristotle put it, it is from the fact that a thing is or is not, that our thought or word is true or false. So in uh, picture 2.1 here, the statement, the cat is on the mat, is true, uh, because the cat is on the mat. <laughs> this state of affairs is the truth, the facts, the reality. In 2.2, the statement, the cat is on the mat, is false because it isn't. So this is not a particularly high-flown concept here. So of course beliefs may or may not be true and they may or may not be rationally warranted or rationally justified for us to hold. The standard textbook definition of knowledge in this propositional sense is warranted true belief, i.e. knowledge is a belief that's true plus 
warrant, which is the fulfillment of some additional necessary condition or conditions. And there's dispute over what that might be. Some philosophers indeed think that true belief is in and of itself sufficient for knowledge. That to have knowledge is just to have true beliefs. And whether or not they think knowledge requires warrant, philosophers disagree about the nature of warrant or justification. So we have this interesting situation where philosophers disagree about knowledge, but they know that they disagree. Smallland says, I can know some things directly and simply without having to have criteria, sort of rules for how I know them, without having to know how even that I know them. We simply identify clear instances of knowledge without having to possess or apply any criteria for knowledge. We may reflect on these instances and go on to develop criteria for knowledge that's consistent with them, but the criteria are justified by their congruence, by their fit with specific instances of knowledge not the other way around. Morland says, here's a simple definition of knowledge. It's to represent reality in thought the way it really is on the basis of adequate grounds. Little can be said in general about what counts as adequate grounds. The best one can do is to start with specific cases of knowledge and its absence in art chemistry, memory, scripture, logic, and formulate helpful descriptions of adequate grounds accordingly. So, maybe knowledge is true belief held on the basis of adequate grounds. Maybe knowledge just is true belief, making warrant a related but entirely separate issue. But in practical terms, maybe the more kind of tractable, get atable question is, is belief that P, whatever P might be, is belief that P warranted or rational? So let's move on to thinking about faith and spirituality as the context of faith. The Greek term for faith is pistis. In Greek mythology, pistis was the spirit of trust, of honesty and good faith, uh, which uh, escapes from Pandora's box when she fails to resist the urge to peek inside. Her Roman name was fide, from which we get the English word faith. As General Howard Snyder says, both pistis and fide come from the Proto-Indo-European root, which I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce, which means to trust. Trust or reliance is central to the meaning of words in this group, as is uh, faithfulness, trustworthiness, fidelity or loyalty. Although often translated as belief, at least in English Bibles, New Testament Greek dictionary definitions of pistis include uh, credence, conviction, assurance, honesty, integrity, commitment, trust. And the English word faith reflects this diversity. Uh, it can mean trust, like faith in someone. It can mean allegiance, loyalty, fidelity, faith towards someone or an ideal or a movement. Um, it can mean belief that the doctrines, say, of a religion are true. And it can mean belief in something for which there's no proof. 
it has quite a broad range of meaning. Now it seems to me that everyone has a way of life, uh, a faith or a spirituality. A spirituality that's made up of their worldview assumptions, the ideas about reality that one believes and or commits to acting on the basis of, combined with attitudes that jointly lead to actions. So spirituality is made up of your, your assumptions, your attitudes, uh, your choices, your commitments leading you to act and behave in the world in a certain way. This spiritual structure is generic, but the spiritual content can differ from one spirituality to another. For example, you might say that Christianity is about God's call to enter into a Christ-centred way of life, a Christ-centred spirituality that integrates our assumptions, attitudes and actions through faithfulness to Jesus. Daniel Howard Snyder and Daniel McCoon in their recent article on faith in the Encyclopedia of Philosophy of Religion suggest that for X, for someone to have faith that P or faith in P, is for X to have a positive doxastic, that is relating to belief, or non-doxastic, that is not relating to belief, but a positive cognitive attitude towards P. That is, for X to believe that P is probably true, or that P is more likely true than any credible contrary, or to assume that P whilst neither believing nor disbelieving P. But also for X to have a positive conative posture towards the truth of P, that is for them to see P as something that's worthy of choice, uh, of admiration, there's a worthiness to P that they recognise and for X to be disposed to live their life in light of that attitude and that posture. That is, trusting and or giving allegiance to P, acting on that basis, being disposed to be resilient in the face of challenges to living that way. Daniel McEwen, writing on his own, is a little more straightforward when he says we can characterise the phenomena associated by faith using what we might call a CAB, C-A-B, analysis, attending to the cognitive, affective and behavioural aspects of the complex stance of faith that faith, faithfulness involves. We can understand what it is to have faith by asking about what is distinctive or characteristic about what one thinks, what one cares about and what one does when one has a particular faith. McEwen argues that in his view these cognitive, affective and behavioural aspects of faith can be filled in in a plurality of ways. For example, he says one can have faith that God exists even if one lacks the belief that God exists. Though such faith is incompatible with confident, flat-out belief that God does not exist. While this or that person's individual faith may be irrational in practice, faith as a concept does not entail irrationality by definition. The mere fact that Christian faith is quote, incompatible with confident, flat-out belief that God does not exist, means that Christian faith should not be blind to rational objections and should not entail, quote, a surrender of reason in favour of faith. Assessing the rationality of a particular person's faith will involve reference to both 
epistemic rationality and pragmatic rationality, as well as to issues about uh, ethical values. McEwen argues that given high enough valuations, for example, valuing God and the possibility of living in a relationship with God, it can be practically, pragmatically rational to continue to remain faithfully engaged in what one hopes is a relationship with God, even in the absence of belief that God exists. For almost any non-negligible probability one assigns to God's existence. Consequently, he argues that there's wide room for honestly wrestling with doubt from within the Judeo-Christian tradition. Now, philosopher Alexander Pruss argues that there's a restriction upon this kind of non-doxastic faith that comes from the realm of ethics. He points out that a Christian must be committed to acting in accordance with Christianity. Not that they will succeed in doing so all the time necessarily, but they must be committed to trying to do so. And he says that sometimes there is a moral conflict between Christian ethics and non-Christian ethics. For example, he points out one might believe that if Christianity is right, is true, one may never offer sacrifices to Caesar. But if Christianity is wrong, then sometimes one must do so. One must offer sacrifices to Caesar, for example. Prost then argues that for people in fairly common epistemic predicaments, being both fully Christian and a moral person require that one accept Christianity, or at least the existence of God, with an epistemic probability of at least 50%. But it wouldn't be surprising if particularly first century people with pre-existing socio-religious commitments that are at odds with Christian ethics, living in a communitarian, honour-shame culture that subjects Christians to persecution, would only commit to placing their faith in Jesus if they believed that the gospel was true. I don't think that would be too surprising. But on the one hand, the New Testament gospel is rooted in purported revelatory events about which the disciples testify as witnesses. And secondly, it appears to be assumed throughout that Christians believe and even know that the gospel is true. On the other hand, the explicit descriptions of what we might call saving faith in the New Testament, I think at least can be read as descriptions of that kind of non-doxastic faith that McEwen and Snyder were talking about. And this does seem to be a continuation of the Old Testament treatment of faith. On the one hand, throughout the Old Testament, God reveals himself through events such as the miraculous events of the Exodus, through predictive prophecy. Um, just one quote from Joshua 4, verses 23 to 24. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. On the other hand, right relationship with God is established through faith. Genesis 15:6, classically, Abram put his faith in the Lord and he reckoned it to him for righteousness. Or Deuteronomy 6:5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
going to share with you a few quotes from a very recent article by the Jewish philosopher and rabbi Samuel Lebens. This is from his article, Amen to Dat, on the foundations of Jewish epistemology from religious studies. He argues that the, the word emuna, the Hebrew Bible's word for what we would call faith, generally takes non-propositional objects. Indeed, the Bible tends to talk about emuna the X, faith in X, rather than emuna shep, P, for the faith that P is true. Propositional emuna plays second fiddle to the much more central notion of emuna in God. And Lebens analyses the word amen, which shares its uh, linguistic root with amuna. He says, uh, someone utters a prayer and we say, Amen. We express not merely our belief that what has been said is true and perhaps not even a belief that it's true, so much as our heartfelt desire that it be true. In addition to that, operating on the perhaps beliefless assumption that it is true, we accept upon ourselves the consequences of its truth, even if some of those consequences might be painful or risky. And in addition to that, we commit ourselves to live lives on the perhaps beliefless assumption of its truth. We commit ourselves to shaping our behaviour in light of the content of what has been said. Leban says, I'd like to suggest that when Amuna appears in the Hebrew Bible as a propositional attitude, it's equivalent to the subject of that attitude saying regarding the proposition in question, Amen to that. In other words, when Amuna appears as a propositional attitude towards P, the subject of that attitude is being said to have any one or any combination of the following. One, a commitment to shape her behaviour against the operative assumption that P is true. Two, a personal willingness to accept the risks that follow from the truth of P. And or three, the desire that P is true. No single element of this list and no combination of them approaches what we English speakers tend to mean by belief. So Lebens concludes, the Hebrew Bible, it seems, would take the side of those philosophers today who argue that faith can be a propositional attitude and that the attitude in question needn't include belief that the proposition is true. Let's look at some verses of saving faith in the New Testament, Acts 16.31. I'm not going to go through all the, the, the Greek... Uh, tenses here and so on, but have faith on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Romans 10.9, if you uh, homo logos, uh, if you confess, if you publicly declare, if you align with, praise, celebrate, quite a range of meanings for that word, with your mouth Jesus as Lord and have faith in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. John 6.29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you put your faith in him whom he has sent. John 11.25, the one faithing, we don't really have the, the, the word faithing in English, uh, but they do in, in the Greek as it were. I, I, you could perhaps say the one having faith or putting faith in me, though he die, yet he shall live. John 17.3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And you're immediately thinking, if you know about English word uses anyway, oh, hang on, know you. That's got to be about belief. But to know the Lord doesn't mean know about the Lord. If you go back into the Old Testament background of the usage here, we get to passages like Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbour and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, 
Obviously, in context, they're not saying, let me teach you about the existence of God, or let me tell you about the nature of God in this Jewish context. Your brother, fellow Israelite, already knows this, right? The word, and again, look in the, the, uh, the dictionaries of the usage, I think the use of the word here is in the meaning of obey. And you can see that from the context, write the law within them, write it on their hearts. No longer will each one teach his neighbour and his brother saying, no, I obey the Lord, for they will all, no, obey me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, because the law's written on their hearts. Or Hosea chapter 4, this is 1 to 2 and verse 6. Uh, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge, acknowledgement, obedience of, concern for, as CEV translate it, God in the land. And notice, it's interesting to know, within Hebrew literature, there's often you get parallelism of the same meaning repeated in a different way of expressing it from one line to the next in poetic form. No faithfulness, no steadfast love means the same thing as and no, not, no knowledge of. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. It's translated in my English version there but the Good News translates it, they do not acknowledge me. The CEV translates it, by refusing to obey. And I think from context that seems to be the better translation. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest of me. And since you've forgotten the law of the Lord, again the parallelism, the law of the Lord, forgotten obeying the law of the Lord is the same thing as rejecting knowledge. I will also forget your children. Hosea 6, 1-3a. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us, no, let us acknowledge, confess, obey. Let us press on to, no, obey the law. Let us return to the faithfulness of the covenant relationship. So having thought about some biblical definitions of faith on the back of some philosophical exploration of what we might mean by that, let's think about what atheists in our culture often tend to mean by it, when they're, particularly when they're using that to attack religious belief or faith, or spirituality. Back to Dawkins, criticising faith as requiring blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. Where to start? Well, of course, he doesn't just mean in the teeth of evidence, he means in the teeth of sufficient, of probative evidence against that belief. Uh, if you've watched any detective crime drama or read any crime novels you know it's quite easy to have evidence that seems to point towards someone's guilt early on in the story and then later on you find out more about the context and more about more evidence and you see that actually the bulk of the evidence shows that it wasn't the maid that did it it was the butler after all or whatever right so he means in the teeth of probative sufficient evidence to show that those uh, that trust is misplaced. Blind trust. Hmm. Doubt. Howard Snyder and McEwen again, they distinguish. Useful. Philosophers love distinguishing things. It keeps kind of everything neat and tidy in the sock drawer of our minds. Uh, they distinguish having doubts about something, that is having some reason but not enough reason to think that P isn't true, they distinguish that from being in doubt about it, that is being unsure whether P is true or false. And they say let's distinguish both of them from doubting that something is the case, that is thinking P probably isn't true. Those are all different things. Now, faith 
and belief in P is, of course, compatible with having doubts about P, having some reason not to believe it, but not enough to not believe it. Faith, but not belief in P, you might think, is compatible with being in doubt about P. Faith, again, but not belief in P, is compatible with a sort of unconfident doubting that P. But neither faith nor belief in P is compatible with confident disbelieving, positively disbelieving that P, positively doubting it. Dawkins talks about blind trust, but trust, including trust in religious contexts, doesn't have to be blind, of course. So let's get rid of the blind adjective there, as if it's kind of redundant. Uh, and what about this middle phrase about in the absence of evidence? It kind of assumes, for a start, that you are rational to have faith or even to have belief in the absence of evidence. But I don't think either of those claims is true, necessarily. Interestingly, according to Dawkins, all beliefs fall into one of two categories. He says, on the one hand, there is what he calls proper evidence-based belief. For example, in a children's book called The Magic of Reality, he says, the only good reason to believe that something exists is if there is real evidence that it does. It always comes back to our senses one way or another. On the other hand, there's the improper methodology of what he calls blind faith. It says faith is believing in something when there literally isn't a scrap of evidence. If there were a scrap of evidence, then it wouldn't be faith, kind of just by definition, right? Mm -mm. Well, here's fellow atheist Alex Rosenberg describing his uh, view as someone who subscribes to the theory of knowledge, the epistemology of scientism. He says, being scientistic just means treating science as our exclusive guide to reality. We trust science as the only way to acquire knowledge, sort of empirical experience as our only guide to reality. But the scientific demand that every rational belief must be justified by empirical evidence is flat-out self-contradictory. That demand is not a demand that can be justified by empirical evidence. Indeed, it's a demand that entails an infinite regress that can't be satisfied. If I'm not rational to believe A unless I've got empirical evidence for the truth of A, well, let's call the empirical evidence for the truth of A B. But why do I believe that B is a true description of the evidence for A and that it really supports A? Well, for those beliefs to be rational, I've got to have evidence for my beliefs. Calls those C and D. But what about C and D? And so on, and so on, and so on. And you never get anywhere. Also, this scientific demand is, is open, I think, to just obvious counterexamples. Indeed, atheist Sam Harris, in his book The Moral Landscape, points out that intuition denotes the most basic constituent of our faculty of understanding. While this is true in matters of ethics, it is no less true in science. The traditional opposition between reason and intuition is a false one. Reason is itself intuitive to the core. As any judgment that a proposition is reasonable or logical relies on intuition to find its feet. That's where argument starts from. And you have to have somewhere to start from because you can't argue for everything. Who's got the time? So as J.P. Morland and William Lane Craig jointly note, in philosophy, intuitions play an important role. Intuitions are not infallible. They can lead you astray. But they are prima facie justified, on the face of it, at first look justified. 
If one carefully reflects on something and a certain viewpoint intuitively seems to be true, then one's justified in believing that viewpoint in the absence of overriding counter-arguments. And of course, as they point out, those counter-arguments would themselves ultimately track back to relying upon some intuitions about reality and how arguments should work and so on. We are thinking here about issues of assigning the burden of proof with what uh, Oxford philosopher Richard Swinburne calls the principle of credulity, in other words, the principle of when to trust, when to be trusting. He says it's a basic principle of knowledge called the principle of credulity that we ought to believe that things are as they seem to be until we have evidence that we're mistaken. And he points out that if you don't follow that rule and you try and kind of do the opposite, you'll hardly end up ever believing anything because you'll be in that situation of demanding evidence for the evidence for the evidence for the evidence and so on. So actually rationality starts with trust, which is another word for faith, right? The scientific philosophical demand that every rational belief must be justified, indeed by empirical evidence, is open to obvious counterexamples concerning properly basic beliefs like the law of non-contradiction is true, mathematical truths, moral truths, e.g. It's, it's wrong to torture small children just for fun, um, aesthetic truths like rainbows are beautiful, um, truths like the physical world has an objective existence, uh, truths like the physical world did not pop into existence five minutes ago, complete with a misleading apparent age. There is no empirical test you can do to prove whether or not the world is older than five minutes old, if you are minded to doubt that. Oh, let's cut open a tree. Look, there are lots of tree rings. Yeah, they all popped into existence five minutes ago. Could have, you know, how do you, empirically speaking, actually, we just, seems to be one of these things we know. Um, probably because I trust the fact that I seem to have a memory of things happening longer ago than five minutes, right? But I, I trust that. Maybe those memories popped into existence five minutes ago. Uh, things like, I remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. Brown cheese, yeah. What about the proposition God exists? Maybe it just seems to you, upon reflection on your experience in the world, that, yeah, it's probably a god. Um, you don't have an argument in mind for that, but do you have to have one for that belief to be rational in the absence of sufficient counter-argument? Cicero, the great Roman orator and rhetorician, wrote, what could be more clear or obvious when we look up to the sky and contemplate the heavens than that there is some divinity of superior intelligence? Some philosophers would argue that such intuitive perceptions are just basic beliefs, beliefs not based on other beliefs, just basic beliefs that are grounded in experience rather than argumentation. And that this means they are reasonable, rational, to accept in the absence of sufficient counter-evidence. Let's look at two um, key texts that atheists uh, have interacted with uh, on thinking about Christian faith uh, in particular, from Hebrews and from John's Gospel. So atheist Sam Harris again, he says that Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith, I'm not sure that's what it's doing there, but he says it defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Read in the right way, says Harris, this passage seems to render faith entirely self-justifying. 
Well, here's Hebrews 11.1 1, with the curtain pulled back a little bit on the Greek. Now, pistis is the hypostasis of things hoped for, the alekos of things not seen. We've already noted the roots of pistis and the wide range of meanings that term can have. The Greek hypostasis, translated here as by uh, Harris's assurance, appears in ancient business documents and means a legal assurance guaranteeing the future transfer of possessions described in the contract. The term needn't describe one's subjective mental assurance, your, your conviction or your level of subjective confidence that something is true, but one's possession, objectively speaking, of a contract or a title deed, as it were, that objectively guarantees a particular outcome. Translating the Greek alekos as conviction puts the emphasis on a subjective mental state of the faithful but it can also be translated as as it is in some translations in English as evidence or as proof which points to an objective state of affairs instead elekos can convey the idea of bringing forth evidence that demonstrates something contrary to what superficially appears to be the case. Indeed, Hebrews 11.1 1 can be translated, faith is a guarantee of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. This, I think, fits the context of verses 7 to 12 of Hebrews 11, which seems to me mount an argument to encourage the readers to continue trusting, being faithful to God. Hebrews 11.1 1 does certainly not say that having faith means trusting God in the absence of any rational or pragmatic reason to trust him. Hebrews 11.1 1 does not say faith should be blind, that it should ignore relevant evidence and arguments. Hebrews 11.1 1 does not say, does say that having faith involves trusting that God will deliver on the promise, promise of heaven, mentioned in Hebrews 10 verse 36 just before. In Hebrews 10.34 we read of those to whom the letter was addressed that they quote, knew they had better and lasting possessions in heaven. So Hebrews certainly doesn't present faith as opposed to knowledge. Hebrews discusses faith in the context of knowledge, reason and evidence. Although I would want to add that perhaps that's not what faith as such is about, but that's the context it is discussed in, certainly. And indeed, Hebrews 11, 7 to 8 seems to me argues for having faith in God. Hebrews 11, 1 is consistent, in other words, with the Bible's constant insistence upon the importance of reason and evidence. God says, let us reason together, Isaiah 1, 18. Samuel, the prophet, stood before Israel and said, I'm going to confront you with evidence before the Lord. 1 Samuel 12, 7. Jesus said, exercise faith on the evidence of the miracles. John 14, 11. Peter commands Christians, always be prepared to give a thoughtful response to everyone who asks you to give a word concerning the hope that you have. 1 Peter 3, 15. Paul, quote, reasoned, explaining and proving. Acts 17, 2-3. Paul himself wrote of defending and confirming the gospel, Philippians 1.7. Daniel Howard Snyder again points out that when it comes to translating Hebrews 11.6, English has no verb form for the noun faith in the way, e.g. belief, has to believe. Greek does. 
a careful translation would preserve this parallelism. We could translate it like this. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would approach him must have faith that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So translated, there's no temptation to think that the verse leads credence, lends credence to the view that you can't have faith in God unless you believe that God exists. The standard translation, according to which whomever would approach or draw near to or seek God must believe that God exists, expresses an obvious falsehood. Obviously, someone can approach, draw near to, or seek God, even if one lacks belief that God exists. Indeed, actually, there's a good argument for translating the verse as, whoever would approach him must have faith that he is faithful and that he rewards those who seek him. Either way, the relevant sense of faith entails being committed to act as if X were true. The faith required by Hebrews 11.6 is a matter of risking oneself upon the object of one's faith. It's not merely thinking to oneself, oh, I'd quite like it if X, which I suppose is possible, but actually entrusting oneself to X. Again, we might translate Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to be well-pleasing to God, for he who would draw near to God must or should have faith that God is, or that God is faithful, and that he rewards those who seek him. That is a, a more literal expression now, that the phrase, that God is. Um, faithful is in brackets because there is no literal word, you know, meaning faithful in the text, but neither is there a literal word in the text meaning exists. It just it says that God is, and you have to fill out the is what <laughs> uh, from the context um, so you might import the context of faith you've got to have faith that he is faithful to approach him or that it may just mean that he is full stop as it were make that clearer by inserting in the, in the translation that he exists there's a discussion there about the translation Atheist Sam Harris, moving on to John's Gospel, misinterprets the story of Doubting Thomas, as it's often known as, John 20, 24 to 31, as demonstrating, quote, Ignorance is the true coinage of this realm of Christian faith. Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. John 20, 29. Indeed, according to atheist A.C. Grayling, he says, faith is a commitment to belief in something, either in the absence of evidence or in the face of countervailing evidence. It is accounted a theological virtue precisely for this reason, as the New Testament story of Doubting Thomas is designed to illustrate. Well, I um, respectfully disagree. Um, Jesus says that people who exercise faith in him without having experienced his resurrection for themselves are blessed through their faith in him not that to believe without evidence makes one blessed as Grayling concludes indeed rational faith in Jesus may or may not be tied to belief that Jesus was resurrected and belief that Jesus was resurrected certainly needn't be held without evidence. Let me um, just do a literature punt to my book, Getting at Jesus, which has several chapters dealing in depth with the evidence and arguments for believing that the resurrection truly happened. Neither Jesus nor John is criticising evidence-based belief here. In John's Gospel, Jesus encourages evidence-based faith, to exercise faith 
on the evidence of the miracles. John 14, 11. John himself, of course, is portraying all the other disciples as believing that Jesus was resurrected on the basis of their first-hand personal experience. Before the resurrected Jesus offers himself for empirical examination to Thomas, Thomas wasn't asked to believe without evidence. Although Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came, nevertheless, the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. John 20, 24-25. So yes, John certainly seems to assume that evidence for believing the resurrection happened will encourage saving faith. But he doesn't say that belief is necessary for saving faith. That's something that we may or may not read into between the lines. John says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that having faith in Jesus, you may have life in his name. John 20, 30 to 31. Or as the CEV translates the end there, but these are written so that you will put your faith in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. If you have faith in him, you will have true life. But there's certainly no conflict between faith and reason here. A concluding thought, 1 Peter 3.15 again. Always be prepared to give an answer, that is in the Greek apologia, a thoughtful response, a word back, a word that would be used of what your defence lawyer would do for you in court, give their defence speech. Always be prepared to give an apologia to everyone who asks you to give a word, a logon, an account or a statement concerning the hope, alepidos, the hope or trust that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. At the very least, at the very least, this mandates an apologetic showing that faith in Jesus is not irrational. And I agree with Alvin Plantinger here that to be a Christian is not to be irrational. Thank you.